Thank you for uh, having me here on this sort of final evening of this incredible festival. Uh, I met Suresh in, in uh, Jaipur and he brought this up to me then and I'm, I'm just glad that it's kind of worked out. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be back in the beautiful city of Vancouver. And thank you all for coming out here on such a beautiful day. I can't imagine why you would be indoors right now, but I guess I appreciate it. Uh, thanks to everyone at, at SFU and, and the U.S. Consulate, all the supporters and, and yes, Tina for driving me around for the last two days. Uh, thanks for the, the mention about the, uh, the film. Yeah, we're all very excited about it. It's actually going to be produced by the producer of Harry Potter and written by the screenwriter for um, uh, Brokeback Mountain. And so it's uh, so it's basically Jesus as a gay wizard. <laughs> it's a kind of Jesus you've never seen before. Special Jesus. Uh, no, I'm very excited to be here uh, tonight. I, actually, I, I'm going to try to keep my uh, initial comments fairly brief uh, because what I really enjoy about these kinds of events is the Q and A. And certainly, I've been talking about this book long enough to realize that. Turns out people are interested in Jesus. They've got a lot to say. So, who knew? And I'm, I'm very interested to hear what you all have to say. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, who I am. Uh, I was born in Iran. I uh, sometimes like to joke that I come from a long line of lukewarm Muslims and exuberant atheists. My, uh, my mother was the lukewarm Muslim. My father, the exuberant atheist. Um, you know, the kind of atheist who always had a pocket full of Prophet Muhammad jokes that he would pull out at inappropriate times, that, that kind of atheist. Uh, during the 1979 revolution, my father, who never trusted anyone wearing a turban, thought that it might be a good idea for us to leave Iran until things settled down. That, of course, was 35 years ago. Things did not settle down in Iran. Uh, and turns out he was right about the guys with the turbans, which he reminds me of on a daily basis. Um, we settled in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. This was, of course, the 1980s, the early 80s. I'm not sure if you remember the 80s. It wasn't exactly the best time to be either Iranian or Muslim uh, in the United States, um, as opposed to now, when it's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> This was at the height of the Iran hostage crisis, 444 days in which Americans were being held hostage uh, in I Iran in the, in the U.S. Embassy. And, you know, for a seven-year-old kid trying his hardest to fit in, to not be weird, uh, it was very important for me to distance myself as much as possible from my culture, from my religion, from my heritage. In fact, I've admitted on numerous occasions that I spent a good part of the 1980s pretending to be Mexican. <laughs> which... Tells you how little I understood America, by the way. <laughs> Didn't help at all. But, you know, I've always been deeply fascinated by religion. Despite the fact that, as I say, it did not belong to a very religious household. Never really had any kind of religious instruction or, or spiritual edification. And certainly by the time when we came to the U.S., I mean, really, pretty much... Our lives were scrubbed of any trace of religion. But for me, there was something about those childhood images of revolutionary Iran and the power that religion has to transform a society, for good and for bad, that has never left me. And I must have been, you know, the only 10-year-old uh, in my class who was interested in, in religious phenomenology and history and archaeology and spirituality, though... 
To be honest, I never really had an opportunity to kind of explore it in any meaningful way. Until I was 15 years old. When I was 15 years old, I went with some friends uh, from high school to an evangelical youth camp in Northern California. And there I heard the gospel story for the first time, this incredible story about the God of heaven and earth coming down in the form of a baby, dying for our sins, this promise that anyone who believes in him shall also never die but have eternal life. I had never heard anything like this before in my life. It was a a transformative experience for me. I immediately converted to this particularly conservative brand of evangelical Christianity and then spent the next four or five years uh, preaching this gospel as I had heard it uh, to everyone, whether they wanted to hear it or not, frankly. Um, I was a Bible thumper. I think that's the proper term for it. And then I went to university and I decided that I was going to do this for a living, that I was going to study the Bible for a living. And it was at that moment that I experienced, frankly, the same experience that a lot of people in my situation have had, uh, this sudden realization that pretty much everything that I thought I knew about Jesus Christ was incomplete, if not just incorrect. That, in fact, there was this chasm between the Christ of faith, as I had learned about him in uh, church, and the Jesus of history as I was studying him in school. Now, I understand that this is a strange thing to say because for hundreds of millions of Christians around the world, many of people in this room probably, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith are the same person. There is no difference between the two. And in some ways, that's correct. But there is actually a real distance between these two individuals. They are not the same, though I recognize that for most people, they are. In fact, for most people, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith is this guy. You know this guy. Blonde, blue-eyed, probably speaks with a British accent. As, As we now know, all... God's angels and Nazis do. (laughs) This is a, I I sometimes, I refer to this as Megyn Kelly's Jesus. Uh, Those of you who are unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, Megyn Kelly is the very popular Fox News uh, personality, very nice lady, who, um, you know, created some controversy uh, last December when she said, and I quote, it's a historical fact that Jesus Christ and Santa Claus were white. <laughs> there you go. Uh, funny story. I actually, I actually went. Uh, I, I mean, I defended. I mean, the, the thing is, I actually defended Megyn Kelly on, on this one, uh, mostly because whenever Fox News mentions Jesus, I sell books. But, uh, <laughs> actually, I, uh, I'll tell you a very, very quick funny story. I. I um, I went on CNN to sort of talk about this controversy, and I was on there with this um, this guy named uh, Bill Donahue, who's the head of something called the Catholic League, which has nothing to do with Catholic Church itself. It's a very conservative organization, and uh, and he was asked about Megyn Kelly's um, uh, comment, and his answer, and I kid you not, was, well, 
he's white in all the paintings. Now, I defended Megyn Kelly uh, because she's right. She's absolutely right. Megyn Kelly's Jesus is white because Megyn Kelly is white. But if Megyn Kelly were Kenyan, this is what her Jesus would look like. If Megyn Kelly were Ethiopian, the entire gospel story would be filtered through an Ethiopian cultural lens. If Megyn Kelly were Chinese, her Jesus would be Chinese. If she were Japanese, her Jesus would be Japanese. You see, this is the thing about the Christ of faith, is that he is infinitely malleable. He can take on, and by the way, he has always done so, he can take on any race, any color, any ethnicity, any nationality, whatever his worshippers need him to be. He can take on an entire history, if he need be. He can take on your politics, if that's what you want. This, of course is an image that may be familiar to a lot of you. This is the Latin American Jesus, the Jesus of liberation theology, the Jesus who is a liberator, the Jesus who has a preferential option for the poor, the Jesus who takes up arms against the oppressor. And while this Jesus, the Jesus that is much more familiar in Guatemala and El Salvador and in Colombia than he may be in Vancouver, while this Jesus may seem a little odd, it may seem a little uh, awkward to think of Jesus as carrying a gun, I just have to remind you that the notion of Jesus' warrior goes all the way back to the beginning. The image of Jesus with a sword in his blood-soaked clothes, smiting down the enemies of God, is in the Gospels, is in the New Testament itself. And while, again, this may seem incongruous to a lot of us, I would say that is it all that much more incongruous than the more dominant image of Jesus as king, particularly the European king in which we normally tend to see Jesus? I would say, actually, that the image of Jesus as warrior is probably even more historically accurate than the image of Jesus as king. Regardless, Jesus can take on your politics He can take on your culture, your history. He can even take on your religion. In Korea, Jesus is presented as Buddha. He looks exactly the same as the sort of traditional South Asian expression of the Buddha. In India, Jesus becomes Krishna. He absorbs the culture, the heritage, the mythology of the gods that are already familiar. In Thailand, Jesus takes on the entire panoply of the Hindu gods. The Christ of faith can be whatever you need him to be. But the Jesus of history is frozen in time. And to really figure out how to separate the two, And to focus on the historical man himself, you've got to figure out a way to distance these two figures. Now, 
I don't want to make it sound like this is an easy thing. It's an extraordinarily difficult task. Digging through the layer upon layer of interpretation and legend and myth and creed and dogma and beliefs that have arisen over the figure of Jesus over the last 2,000 years and finding that man who lived 2,000 years ago in the backwoods of Galilee, it's almost an impossible task for a very simple reason. And that is that if you remove Christian writings from the equation, if you remove the New Testament from the equation, there is almost no trace whatsoever about this man. In fact, if you remove the Christian writings from the equation, we can basically know, and know is a strong word, we have a basic consensus, let's just put it that way, uh, of about three things when it comes to the historical Jesus. Number one, that he was a Jew, which sounds obvious, but it's an important thing to just remind you of. And in fact, it's sort of the key to this entire thing. It is absolutely the key to separating the Christ of faith from the Jesus of history. The Jesus of history was a Jew Preaching Judaism to other Jews. I'm going to say this one more time because nothing is more important than this statement. The Jesus of history was a Jew preaching Judaism to other Jews. That is the single most important thing to understand about the historical Jesus. It is the key that unlocks everything else. But while most people, even most conservative Christians would say, yeah, sure, of course Jesus was a Jew. A bad Jew, but he was a Jew. They don't really stop to think about what the consequences of that fact are. The consequences of that fact are that everything that Jesus says, everything that Jesus does has to be understood exclusively in its Jewish context. Every word that comes out of his mouth has to be understood as Jewish teachings. Everything that he says, everything that he does has to be understood exclusively through the lens of first century Judaism. To put it in its simplest way, Jesus didn't start a new religion. He wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew preaching a religion that his, his believers, his followers, his audience already shared. A Jew preaching Judaism to other Jews. That's the first thing. The second thing that we can be fairly confident about is that Sometime in the first half of the first century, that's about as good as we can get, sometime around the first half of the first century, he formed a movement. A movement that was predicated on this notion, this idea, this term that wasn't all that well used in Jesus' time, but we can be fairly confident was historically his because it, it is the, the, the foundation of everything he says and does. And that term is the kingdom of God. Now, what the kingdom of God actually meant, there's just 2,000 years of debate on that point. But there is no debate about the fact that the foundation of Jesus' teachings, the foundation of his ministry, the core and kernel of it, was this thing called the kingdom of God. What did he mean by the kingdom of God? It's a very difficult thing to sort of get into the to the nuts and bolts of to really figure out because 
very, very soon after Jesus' death, the very concept of the kingdom of God transformed into something else entirely. And I'll talk a little bit about that in, the, in, in a moment. But that's an important thing, that sometime in the first half of the first century, he started this movement. And the, the core message, the point of this movement was the establishment of something he called the kingdom of God. Number three, as a result of that movement, he was executed by Rome for the crime of sedition. That's it. That's it. Take away the New Testament, and those three things are the only things that we can say with any kind of confidence at all about the historical Jesus, which is why for many scholars, they've given up the quest altogether. For many scholars, the fact is, is that's just not enough. That's not enough information to actually recreate Jesus' life. And so the quest for the historical Jesus that began in the heady days of the 19th century has more or less fizzled out. And for a lot of scholars, the conclusion is, is that the Jesus of history is simply inaccessible to us. Well, I disagree. Because while we know very little about the historical Jesus, we know almost everything about the world in which he lived. First century Palestine was an era that has been exhaustively documented, thanks in no small part to the Romans. I mean, look, whatever you want to say about the Romans, they were pretty good at documentation. They were good at documentation and killing. Those were sort of their two, and roads, and roads, okay? So the killing, roads, documentation. Those were really the three pillars upon which the Roman Empire stood. We know how much a bushel of wheat cost in Jesus' time. We are intimately familiar with the culture, politics, social, and economic situation of Jesus' world. So, the hypothesis is a simple one. Take what little we know about Jesus, place him firmly in his time and place, a time and place that we know a great deal about, and allow the time and place to define him. Allow his world to fill in the holes of his biography. And that's essentially all I'm doing in this book. And I'm certainly not the only one who's done that. It's been done for, for many, many years. But when you do that, when you create this little hypothetical experiment, the Jesus that arises looks a little bit different than the Jesus that I think a lot of people are familiar with. Because when you put Jesus in his world, what you cannot fail to recognize is what an absolutely tumultuous, politically turbulent era this man lived in. Probably the most turbulent era in the history of the Holy Land, which I know is saying a lot, actually. This was an era that was awash in apocalyptic expectation. Countless preachers and messiahs, miracle workers, charismatic fantasts. These guys traipsed through the Holy Land, talking about the, the, the kingdom of God, talking about the rule of God on earth, uh, pr- predicting the end of the Roman occupation, uh, healing the sick, casting out demons. We know their names. Jesus was not all that different than these other characters, though There was something that separated him, and I'll talk about that in a moment. This was an era that was dominated by a priestly aristocracy, and in particular, the high priest himself. 
Judaism, of course, in the first century was not a rabbinic religion. It was not a Torah-based religion. It was a temple-based religion. It was what was what would, would uh, officially be referred to as a temple cult, one that was absolutely controlled by the temple aristocracy, a very wealthy group of uh, Jews who passed the priesthood amongst themselves like a legacy and had managed to accumulate an enormous amount of wealth, primarily by marrying themselves to the Roman occupation, on the backs of poor Jews like Jesus. It was a era that was controlled by a new kind of Jewish elite, the Herodian elite. These were the products of the Herodian revolution. This is the great King Herod. Uh, These were Jews that were heavily Hellenized. Um, They had also managed to accumulate great uh, swaths of land and, and wealth. They had created a situation in which the gap between the very rich and the very poor had become absolutely unbridgeable. And, of course, it was dominated by a brutal, bloody Roman occupation that controlled every aspect of life for the Jews, including the religious life. Indeed, the Roman occupation maintained in a very close scrutiny, very close control over the temple proceedings. It's a very simple matter. If you want to control the Jews, you have to control the temple priesthood. And if you want to control the temple priesthood, you have to control the temple. Indeed, the Romans would often choose for themselves who the high priest would be. And if the high priest disappointed them in any way, they would just simply get rid of that high priest and pick another one. They would seize the high priest's holy vestments, the tools that he would use to perform the sacrifices and the feasts and to communicate with the divine, they would seize those materials and hold on to them and then pass them out to the high priest during the feast days and festivals. In other words, for the vast majority of Jews, there really was no difference between the priestly aristocracy that controlled the temple and the Roman occupation that controlled everything else. In fact, if there were any confusion about the marriage of these two forces, you all you had to do was look at the temple itself. The governor of Jerusalem, the Roman governor of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate, actually resided in the temple, in the Antonia fortress, which was located, it was attached to the northwest corner of the temple itself. That was pretty much the only symbolism that you needed to understand how close this marriage between the Roman occupation and the priestly aristocracy was. This situation, as you can imagine, was intolerable to a great many Jews who found the priestly corruption and and wealth to be an abomination on the land and who understood the Roman occupation to be a, a, a against the, the exact commandments of God himself, who in the Torah says that this is a land that has to be cleansed of every foreigner so that it can be purified solely for the chosen people. Indeed, the Bible demands that the Israelites slaughter every man, every woman, every child, that they kill every ox, goat, and sheep, that they burn down every farm, every meadow, that they kill every blade of grass. Let nothing that breathes live, says Deuteronomy, so that this land can exist for none but those who worship Yahweh. And yet, here they are, 
now under the boot of an imperial pagan power forced to share this land with Syrians and Arabs and Greeks, each one of them heathens, each one of them pagans, in direct opposition to the commandment of God. This was intolerable for the Jews. No wonder then that one after another, Messiahs rose up. One after another rose up challenging the Roman occupation, challenging the priestly authorities. And of course, one after another, they were struck down. Because here's... The problem with the term Messiah is that the very statement, the very phrase, I am the Messiah, is a treasonable offense in first century Palestine. Why? Messiah means the anointed one. The principal task of the Messiah is to reestablish the kingdom of David and to usher in the rule of God. Well, if you're claiming to be reestablishing the kingdom of David and ushering in the rule of God, you are claiming to be ushering out the rule of Caesar. That is treason. And everyone, everyone who stood up and said, I am the Messiah, Jesus included, was killed for it. So that is the world in which Jesus lived. That is the world in which Jesus spoke and in which he had his ministry. And we can use that world To help call through the Gospels to separate the myth and the legend and the theology from the historical kernels. To figure out what Jesus actually meant when he said, for instance, I am the Messiah. What he meant when he said, the kingdom of God is upon you. And there's a clue to that in the way that he ended his life on a cross. You see, crucifixion was a punishment that Rome reserved almost exclusively for crimes against the state. Crimes like sedition, rebellion, treason, insurrection. These are the only crimes for which you could be crucified under Roman law. Now, people often say, well, but wait, weren't there two thieves crucified alongside Jesus? No, there were not. The Greek word lestai, which is the word that the Gospels use to describe the people that Jesus was crucified alongside, the Greek word lestai can mean thieves, but it doesn't. Kleptai means thieves. Lestai means bandits. And bandit was the most common term in first century Palestine for an insurrectionist, for a rebel. Indeed, Jesus himself is on more than one occasion referred to as a, as a lestis, as a bandit uh, in the Gospels. In fact, if you had any question about what Jesus was doing on that cross, it's etched above his head. Every person who was crucified received a titulus so that everyone could see the crime for which they were being crucified. Jesus' crime was striving for kingly duty, sedition, treason. You see, Crucifixion was not a death penalty for Rome. I know that sounds weird, because you did end up dying, always, but it wasn't a death penalty. In fact, it was often the case that Rome would kill you first, then crucify you. The purpose of crucifixion wasn't to kill the criminal. The purpose of crucifixion was to act as a deterrent for rebellion, which is why crucifixions were always done in public, in marketplaces, on hills, at the entrance to cities. 
the hill of Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, was literally the hill in front of the front gates to Jerusalem. You could not walk into Jerusalem without first walking by hundreds of dead and dying people who dared defy the will of Rome. So, when you think about Jesus on the cross... Don't think about an innocent man mistakenly crucified alongside two thieves. Think of three rebels being crucified together at the same time. Because that's what happened to the historical Jesus. Now, of course, the question is why? And here's where we get to the crux of the matter. When we look at the, what Jesus' teachings and what really makes him stand out from these other messiahs, because that's a question that everybody always asks. Well, if there were all these other messiahs, and we know their names, I write about them in the book, when many of them were even more famous than Jesus, had far, far more followers than Jesus did in their lifetime, why is it that we still only call Jesus the messiah and we've forgotten about all of those, when in fact... According to the definition of Messiah, Jesus was as successful in in his messianic role as all those other messiahs. He did not establish the kingdom of David. He did not usher in the rule of God. He did not liberate the Jews from occupation. Therefore, he is not the Messiah full stop. It's as simple as that. And yet, and yet... And the question of and yet, I think, is really what makes Jesus, the man, the historical Jesus, not the Christ of faith, the historical Jesus, unique and worth writing about, worth talking about, worth coming in here on a beautiful day and hearing about. And that has to do with this fundamental notion of the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes, those abiding words of Jesus Give us a clue about what he meant when he said the kingdom of God. You remember the Beatitudes. You probably heard them in Sunday school. Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are those who hunger, for they shall be fed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall rejoice. These beautiful words for millions and millions of Christians around the world signify a message of Jesus of equality, of peace, Uh, a a world in which everyone will be the same where you know everyone will will have equal access equal rights equal hopes dreams aspirations that's mostly because they don't keep reading because jesus doesn't finish there he keeps going then he says woe to the rich for they have received their consolation woe to those who are fed for they shall go hungry. Woe to those who rejoice, for they shall mourn. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. This is not some utopian fantasy that Jesus is describing. This is a frightening new reality, an absolute reversal of the social order in which those on the top and those on the bottom will switch places, in which the rich will become poor and the poor will become rich. Imagine if someone started preaching that today. We'd probably do to him what we did to Jesus 2,000 years ago. Because that message is a profoundly appealing message if you're on the bottom. Not so much if you're on the top. In fact, it's enough to get you killed. 
And it's that message, that vision of the kingdom of God as a holy new world order that survives Jesus' crucifixion in a way that the message of all the messiahs who came before and after him did not. Now, usually when I give this talk, I think for a lot of people, thinking about the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith as two different things can be somewhat disturbing. And I get a lot of criticism from Christians especially who will say, well, by, by separating the two, by removing the divinity from Jesus, you're making him normal. You're making him no longer, he's no longer extraordinary. He's, he's boring. He's like everyone else. That you've removed what's special about him. I don't understand this criticism at all. Because the bare bone facts of Jesus' life. And when we talk about these facts, let me just emphasize, we are talking about a poor, and when I say poor, I mean really, really poor. Let me just pause for a moment and explain what I mean when I say poor for a moment. The Gospels refer to Jesus as a tecton. And in our modern imaginations, that word means carpenter. Like he's some middle class dude making chairs for a living. That's not what tecton means. Tecton means builder. And as a builder, that means that Jesus would have been what's referred to as a day laborer. That would put him... At the second lowest rung of the social ladder in first century Palestine. He would have been just above the slave, the beggar, and the indigent. In fact, the Romans used the word tecton as a swear word. It was a swear word for Rome. It meant any uncouth and illiterate peasant. And Jesus was unquestionably both those things. Let me just say that one more time. Jesus' profession, what he did for a living, was a swear word for Rome. Are you getting what I'm talking about here? Megan, when I say poor? Does that make sense? Poor! A poor, very likely illiterate, uneducated, marginal Jewish peasant from the backwoods of Galilee. What nowadays we would refer to as a country bumpkin. Who nevertheless, through his charisma through the power of his teachings, formed a movement on behalf of the weak, the poor, the dispossessed, the marginalized, women especially, a movement that was seen as such a threat to the greatest empire the world had ever known that they hunted him down like a criminal, arrested him, tortured him, and executed him for sedition. That sounds like the most interesting man in the world. Whatever else... You think about Jesus. Whatever else you think he may have been. Just the bare bone facts of his life. Make him worth knowing. So this idea. That removing the Jesus of history. From the Christ of faith. Makes the Jesus of history. No longer interesting. Not worth knowing. Couldn't be more wrong. In fact. That's really why I wrote this book. I mean, mostly I wrote this book. Because of my secret Muslim agenda. To destroy Christianity. But. That's, that was my primary mission. But my secondary mission, secondary mission, was to argue that the example that Jesus led 2,000 years ago and how to confront social injustice, 
how to confront the powers that be, political and religious, how to confront those self-ascribed gateways to salvation, those gatekeepers to salvation, that that example is as resonant today as it was 2,000 years ago. In fact, my point in this book is that you can be a follower of Jesus without necessarily being a Christian. Just like you can be a Christian without necessarily being a follower of Jesus. Thank you very much. Okay, well, I guess that there are a couple of ushers with mics. And uh, all you have to do is raise your hand and I'll come to you. Uh, I just have one very brief rule and it's not the you have to ask a question rule that you hear all the time. Whatever. If you got something to say, say it. I don't care. Um, the only rule that I have is that uh, I insist on going uh, uh, male, female, male, female. So uh, if a gentleman asks a question, I will just wait here all night until a lady asks a question. So, uh, yes, sir. Well, wait, wait for the mic because so everyone can hear. What do you think of Paul? To me, he's almost a Roman agent who subverts and perverts Christ, uh, Jesus's message. Well, that's actually a fairly common view among scholars, though I have to say that Paul in the last two decades or so has had a little bit of a rehabilitation among a lot of a sort of a new class of scholars. The traditional version of Paul, the traditional view of, of Paul, and it's one that I actually hold, uh, is that he is the person responsible for what we now call Christianity. Paul's an unusual character. I mean, the first thing that's important to understand about Paul is that this is a man who never met Jesus, never knew Jesus, never spoke to Jesus. In fact, in all of Paul's writings, he never mentions anything that Jesus says or does, with the exception of the Last Supper the crucifixion, and the resurrection. But those aren't historical events for Paul. Those are liturgical formulae. They're just, you know, things that the, that the community does. Uh, but he never mentions anything. Never says a single word, that a single teaching of Jesus, never quotes Jesus. In fact, what's remarkable about Paul is despite the fact that he has this kind of ecstatic experience, those of you unfamiliar with Paul, his his story, at least the way that Luke says it, Paul never says this story, but but the gospel uh, uh, writer Luke, uh, who wrote a second book, a sequel to his gospel called the Book of Acts, which is basically just a biography of Paul. Luke was one of Paul's disciples. Uh, he tells this story about how Paul was a Jew's Jew, a, a Pharisee who who persecuted uh, the followers of Jesus, and then on the road to Damascus. He has this ecstatic experience where he sees the risen Jesus and, and he, he converts to the movement. And then, this is where Paul picks up in his letters, and then he does something unusual. Paul says, rather than go to Jerusalem and talk to the apostles, you know, the people who knew Jesus, who like followed him, who were there when he died, he decides he's going to just start preaching this message because what he says is this is a gospel that I have not received from any man. He says this is a gospel that I received 
from the risen Jesus himself. And in fact, he uses this term risen Jesus constantly. And he references, he uses it in opposition to something he refers to as Jesus of the flesh. And he means that derisively. He says, oh yeah, sure, the apostles, yeah, they knew Jesus of the flesh. But I know the risen Jesus. Yeah, Jesus may have handpicked the apostles, uh, you know, as they were fishing and all of that stuff. But he picked me when I was in the womb, Paul says. And what's remarkable is that this message that the risen Jesus gives Paul is something utterly new and unique. First of all, the core of this message is that this is not a Jewish movement anymore. This is a movement for everyone. Paul refers to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. He says that Jesus told him to start preaching to the Gentiles. Before this, this is a Jewish movement. This is a Jewish religion for Jews. And in fact, you know, the early Christian community, they were okay if non-Jews joined them, as long as they became Jews first. Now, in the year 57, the head of the community, this man by the name of James, the flesh and blood brother of Jesus, very fascinating character, who was in charge of the, the, the Christian community. This is probably the least known fact about the early history of Christianity, that Jesus' flesh and blood brother, a man by the name of James, uh, becomes his desi- hand-picked designator, uh, designated leader uh, after Jesus' death. In fact, James is an incredibly fascinating character. Jesus was in charge of the Jesus movement for three years. James is in charge of it for 30 years after Jesus' death. And James is, we have an enormous, a treasure trove of historical documents on James, and yet he's been completely excised from Christian history for a very good reason. And it's precisely what I'm saying right now, which is that James was a Jew. He thought Jesus was a Jew, that this was just Judaism, and that if you wanted to follow Jesus, you had to be a Jew. You had to be circumcised. You had to follow the law of Moses, including all of the purity and dietary uh, commandments. Now, in the year 57, as I say, James changes his mind, this very momentous moment in the book of Acts, where James, uh, under pressure from Peter, no less, uh, decides that you no longer have to be circumcised to join the Jesus movement, which, you know, it's probably a good idea, marketing-wise, a good idea. Um, but, says James, but you have to still follow all of the law of Moses, Because this is a Jewish religion and we are Jews. Paul had the exact opposite idea. Paul says in Galatians, Christ is the end of the Torah. That means that not only is this not Judaism, it is divorced from Judaism. It is a completely new thing as far as Paul was concerned. Paul says, not only do you no longer have to follow the law of Moses, he refers to the law of Moses as, quote, the law of death chiseled in stone. In fact, he says that anyone who circumcises himself is cutting, is quote, cutting himself off from God. This is in exa- the exact opposite of what James and the Jerusalem church is preaching. Paul goes even further. He starts 
talking about the risen Jesus as a completely new kind of creation. In fact, Paul, with the exception of John, which is the last gospel written way, way, written about anywhere between 100 and 120 AD, and really, at this point, Paul's version of Christianity is the only version of Christianity that exists any longer. But Paul is the only one who ever refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ. Everyone else refers to him as Jesus the Christ. Because Christ is his title. Paul says Jesus Christ as though Christ is his last name. This was a completely new way of thinking about who Jesus was. Uh, the closest sort of parallel to it is like the cognomen that the, that the emperors would get. Caesar, right? So Caesar Octavian. Uh, Caesar uh, um, uh, uh, Tiberius, right? So it would just the, the 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 emperors would take on Caesar as a cognomen. That's how that's how Paul thought about Christ. This was interestingly enough a profoundly unpopular view in in uh, Paul's own lifetime. In fact, probably the biggest surprise about those first few decades after Jesus's death is that. Paul's version of Christianity, this universal version of Christianity that was for everyone and that involved a a complete break from Judaism and the law of Moses, that in reality was a wholly new religion, that was a marginal fringe view. James's version of Christianity, a Jewish religion for Jews based on the law of Moses, is what was the primary expression of christianity in that first generation after jesus's death and no wonder i mean look you're not going to win an argument against jesus's actual brother what what are you going to say what are you going to say i think jesus meant this no i bunked with him that's not what he meant you don't win an argument against james and indeed there are these three hilarious uh if you if you understand the context of it hilarious moments in the book of acts uh in which paul is summoned to Jerusalem by James to answer for these teachings, these these sort of uh, heterodox teachings of his. The last one takes place uh, in the year 60, where um, Paul uh, is summoned to Jerusalem, and there's this great scene in the book of Acts in which James says to Paul, it has come to our attention that you have been telling the brothers that they do not need to follow the law of Moses. Now, We know that this cannot be true, he says, but to set the minds of the brothers at ease, you are going to, and then he commands him to take part in a uh, a purity ritual in the temple. We now know what that purity ritual means. It's called the Nazarite vow. It's a very extreme Jewish purity ritual. Uh, And here's the funny thing is that James, like Jesus, was an illiterate peasant. He's couldn't read any language, let alone Greek. Paul is not even a Hebrew. He doesn't live in the Holy Land. He's a Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jew who lives in Tarsus, is a Roman citizen, lives in one of the wealthiest port cities in Rome, is highly educated, and unlike James and all the apostles, wrote his thoughts down. Hence the letters of Paul. James didn't write anything down. Peter didn't write anything down. None of the apostles did. In fact, this will blow your minds, but it's a historical fact. No one, no one 
Whoever met or saw Jesus wrote a single word about him. Every word ever written about Jesus was written by someone who never met him. And that gives you a real sense of the difference between Jesus and Christ and how that happens. Ultimately, Paul loses the argument. He says yes to James because you don't say no to the brother of Jesus. He goes to the temple. He performs this very devout uh, Jewish purity ritual at a temple that Paul says is no longer needed because of Jesus' sacrifice. And then Paul gets arrested because somebody thinks that he's this other guy. He gets shipped off to Rome. James dies in the year 62. Paul dies in the year 66. And then something happens. In the year 66, one of these insurrections, and there were, as I say, dozens of them, one of them works. In the year 66, the Jews rise up in revolt against the Roman Empire, miraculously manage to kick Rome out of the Holy Land and keep them at bay for about three years. Mostly because Rome was dealing with its own civil war uh, and had you know, much more important things to deal with than some irrelevant backwater uh, in the Levant. But when uh, the emperor Vespasian finishes uh, his revolt, he remembers, oh yeah, the Jews. And he goes back, he sends Titus, uh, his son, to Jerusalem and Titus slaughters everybody. Didn't matter whether you were part of the rebellion or not. It doesn't matter. He kills everyone. He burns the city of Jerusalem to the ground. He raises the temple and defiles its ashes. What few Jews are left are scattered across the Roman Empire, sent into exile. The city itself is eventually renamed Aeola Capitolina. And as Josephus says, by the time the destruction was over, you would never have guessed that the city had been habited. That's how, that's how complete the destruction was. At that moment, Judaism itself, as punishment for the revolt, becomes no longer a legitimate cult in the Roman Empire. Now, why am I focusing on this so much? Because the first words of the first gospel ever written, the gospel of Mark, was written after this event. And it was written for a non-Jewish audience. It's a terrible idea to keep preaching this thing to Jews. The Jews are a pariah now in the Roman Empire. So it's time to start preaching this thing to the Gentiles. Now, who's been preaching this thing to the Gentiles for 20 years? Paul. Paul has been already doing this. In fact, not only has he been preaching to the Gentiles for 20 years, he's written it down. Whereas, again, the apostles wrote nothing down. And so Paul, who was despised and and really a fringe character in his own lifetime, all of a sudden has this, well, to I don't mean to be, use this as a pun, but this resurrection, <laughs> this sort of resurgence of Paul, the manual for how to preach to the Gentiles is already there. Think about it this way. The New Testament is 27 books. Among those 27 books, there is one letter from James, though of course it's not from James, it's from his followers, it was written after his death. But there's one letter that represents James, the brother, the flesh and blood brother of the Lord, the irrefutable leader 
of the movement that Jesus left behind. There are two letters from Peter, the first among the apostles, the rock upon which the church was built. There are three letters from John, the beloved disciple and one of the triumvirate who made up the apostolic council in Jerusalem. And there are 14 books that are either written by Paul or written about Paul or written by Paul's followers. The transformation of from Paul from this sort of outcast to the founder of Christianity becomes complete by the time the New Testament is canonized. It's a remarkable story. Most of my answers will not be that long. Uh, uh, a lady uh, and on that side, maybe, is there? Yeah, right there, yes. Um, thanks, fascinating uh, talk, really appreciate it. My question is the discrepancy between Jesus or the man of history and the man of religion is that most stark in Jesus's story or is that a trend you would say you would see in all religious figures whether it's Lord Buddha oh, or across Yes, the world? absolutely. No. Uh, look, I am what I do for a living is I'm interested in origins. And so I I like I'm I'm fascinated by uh, prophets and the origins of religious experience. Those kinds of things are what are interesting to me. And I can tell you across the board that is the case. Uh, there is this wide chasm between the historical person of the prophet and the myth of the prophet in every religion. But I think partly it has to do with just a simple misunderstanding of what a prophet is. We have this tendency to think that prophets are creators of religion. That's not what prophets are. Jesus did not create Christianity. Jesus was a Jew preaching Judaism. Moses did not create Judaism. Moses was a follower of an Egyptian god named Yahweh, which makes perfect sense since Moses was Egyptian. The Buddha was not a Buddhist. The Buddha was a Hindu. He was preaching a reformed version of Hinduism. The prophet Muhammad was, did not create Islam. Read the Quran. Over and over again, it says, this is not a new religion. This is not a new message. This is the exact same message that was given to every prophet who came before you. It's the prophet's followers that are then tasked with this kind of Herculean responsibility of figuring out what just happened. Like, what was that? (laughs) Now what? What do we, he's gone. What do we do? How do we make sense of that? And so you take the traditions, you take the ideas, and you form a man-made, and I mean that literally, a man-made institution. So we're surprised that those institutions bear such little resemblance to the prophets themselves. That's not unusual. That's true across the board. Uh, yes, on that side, the gentleman. Thank you for thank you for coming. Uh, I have a two part question. Uh, you've referenced Moses a couple of times, and I'm wondering if you're familiar with Dr. Israel Finkelstein's book, The Bible Unearthed, and the entire archaeological department in Israel and across the world. The archaeological people no longer believe that uh, Moses existed. Yeah, he's a fictional character, and that we've been lied to for almost 2,700 <laughs> years by rabbis, priests, mullahs, everybody else. 
Moses never existed. The Exodus never happened. The Jews were never slaves in Egypt. It's a, it's a complete fabrication. That's my first question. I want you to comment on the, on that, on the fictional character of Moses. My second one is Jesus, since he's the focus of tonight, uh, the epistle of Jude, the shortest, uh, a shortest uh, extract in the in the New Testament, uh, Jude is, uh, identifies himself as a doulos, the Greek word doulos of Jesus, which means uh, an indentured servant, which means you work for seven years for no pay. So Jesus was a slave owner. If you can't get slavery right, what are the chances that Jesus got anything else right? <laughs> All right, so Thank let me you. answer the second part first. That's an easy one because... By the t- you have to understand that Christians didn't refer to themselves as Christians. The term Christian itself first shows up in Antioch, I guess most scholars would say the mid-50s, around then. And it's a term of abuse. It's not something that Christians refer to themselves as. As a matter of fact, there's every indication to, to show that at least the Jerusalem assembly, the assembly that was dominated by Peter, James, and John, the the tripartite leaders, uh, the so-called leaders of the church, as Paul refers to them, uh, he literally says that, the so-called leaders of the church, um, that they refer to themselves collectively, not as Christians, but as the poor. That was the term that they used for themselves. Because in order to join this movement, you had to sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and live as a community. So this term, doulos, was by the time of Jude, which is a fairly late epistle, by the time of Jude was seen universally among the early Christian community as a metaphor, as an idea of if God, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is Lord, then I am his slave. It's a very common uh, thing. By the way, that is not to say that, that the New Testament is against slavery. On the contrary, read Paul. Paul is all for slavery. He thinks, you know, he tells Timothy, you know, he says, this entire sort of tract about um, how slaves have to obey their masters and things like that. But but in this case, that's a separate thing. The Moses issue, you're right. There is zero evidence that there was any such person named Moses. There's zero evidence that there was any such person as Abraham. Unfortunately, what we are talking about when we're talking about this kind of ancient sacred history is about legends and myth. But it is a mistake to call that a lie. It's a mistake to call myth falsehood. That is a misunderstanding on your part. You see, in our modern parlance, the term myth has become synonymous with falsehood, but that is not what the word myth means. Myth means nothing more or less than stories of gods and goddesses. That's all that myth means. That's all it means. And its truth has nothing to do with the exigencies of the facts that it describes. In other words, you have to come to the realization That when we are talking about sacred history, we are talking about a kind of writing that makes a clear distinction between truth and fact. That those are two separate things. We, as products of the scientific revolution, think they mean the same thing. We think that, well, that which is true is that which can be factually verified. Right? Wrong. That's not what the ancient mind thought. So, is it true that... There was this, you know, Israelite raised in the Egyptian court who brought down seven plagues upon the Pharaoh and brought the Israelites for 40 years through the desert into the holy promised land. 
is, is that factually uh, true? No, of course not. Almost nothing in the Bible is factually true. But that's not the point. Because the truth of that story has nothing to do with the facts of it. The truth of it is an expression of liberation that goes back to the very identity of the Israelites as a nation. This is true of the New Testament as much as it is for the Old Testament. The example that I use in the book is, you know, it's, it's an easy one because it's one that no scholar takes seriously, but it's one that is really the foundation of Christianity, and that is the famous story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. I want to make something very clear to you, and I, I hope that your kids aren't in the room. Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. That's a fact. That's day one of introduction to the Bible. Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. Jesus was a Nazarene. It was what he was known for all of his entire life. His name is the Nazarene. You do realize nobody actually called Jesus Jesus or Yeshu because everybody was named Yeshu in the first century. If you said Yeshu to someone, 30 people would say, huh? <laughs> he was known as the Nazarene. And for a very important reason, because Nazareth was such a piss-poor backwater. This tiny village of maybe a hundred families, mostly made of mud huts and brick. A, A village without a road, without a school, without a synagogue, without a bath. A village, by the way, that doesn't even appear on any maps of uh, ancient Palestine until around the third century or so. If you said someone, if you said to someone, you know, hey, I just saw the Nazarene, they're not going to say which Nazarene. Do you understand what I'm saying here? There's just the one guy. It's not, you know, just the Nazarene. But there is this elaborate story in the Gospel of Luke and only in the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus is said to be born in Bethlehem. By the way, there are only three times in which the word Bethlehem even shows up in the entire uh, New Testament. Why? Why does Luke talk about this whole thing about being born in Bethlehem? Well, it's a very simple reason. If Jesus is the descendant of King David, then the prophecies, some of them, not all of them, the prophecies say that the Messiah has to be born in the city of David, and that's Bethlehem. But here's the problem. Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. Everybody knew Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem, and nobody cared about it. But by the year 90, when Luke starts writing his gospel, it seems that his not being born in Bethlehem was kind of a problem. In fact, there's this wonderful story in John where Jesus is preaching and someone says, hey, that's the Messiah. And somebody else says, that can't be the Messiah because the Messiah was born in Bethlehem and he obviously wasn't. And Jesus doesn't contradict it. He says, yeah, that's right. You know where I'm from. Uh, but I come from God, and then he goes on and talks about something else entirely. So this was obviously a problem. This was obviously a problem. So Luke fixes it. What does Luke say? He says, in the year 6 AD, Quirinius, the governor of Syria, uh, issued a call for a census for the entire Roman world. And the rules of this census required every uh, Roman subject to uproot himself and his family and go to the uh, city of his forefathers to be counted. Jesus' father, Joseph, was from Bethlehem. And so therefore, uh, 
Joseph and a very pregnant uh, Mary have to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, and, and that's where Jesus is born while they're waiting to be counted. Therefore, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Nothing to see here. Look over there. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. It's a wonderful story. It's also totally false. It's just absolutely not true. Why do we know it's not true? Because we're talking about Roman taxation law. What do we know about Romans? They're very good at documenting things, especially when it comes to taxes. There is absolutely no Roman rule ever that says that you have to, every once in a while, the, in, the entire Roman population has to stop what it's doing, take all, uproot itself and, and its family, travel great distances to the, the, the birthplace of their forefathers, then wait there for weeks for someone to count them and their property, which, by the way, they would have left at home anyway. It's insane. It's absurd. The entire empire would have collapsed if that was the case. There was a census in the year 6 AD. We know all about it. Quirinius, the Syrian government, did actually call for a census. Uh, but it wasn't for the entire Roman world. It was actually only of Idumea, Perea, and Judea, which means that it wasn't even of Galilee. So it, it wouldn't have even mattered. It didn't even affect uh, Jesus. Now, why am I saying all of this? Not to tell you that there's something false in the Bible. Of course there's something false in the Bible. Factually, the Bible is not interested in facts. What I'm telling you, the reason I'm telling you this is that Luke, who was writing the story in the year 90, was a Roman citizen living under Roman law. He knew that this was not Roman practice. His audience were all Roman citizens, all of them living under Roman law. All of them knew that this did not happen. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Because the facts of the story were utterly irrelevant to them. In fact, the notion that we would even be focusing on those facts would seem downright bizarre. For them, the only thing about the story that matters is the truth that the story conveys. And what is that truth? The truth is that Jesus is the descendant of King David, born in the city of David. We the modern mind, the products of the scientific revolution, have an understanding of history that is brand new, that is barely 300 years old. We have to learn to not portray our conception of history upon a people for whom that definition of history would be as weird as a flying car. That's how weird it would be. Uh, A lady? Anyone? Oh, yes, over there. Sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry about the people in the back. I will. Um, so I'm interested to know what you think of Nikos Kazantzakis, if you enjoyed the novel, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, or the movie, or what you thought, because I'm thinking of that scene where uh, Harry Dean Stanton as Paul meets the real Jesus, and he says, I don't care if you're the real Jesus. My <laughs> resurrected Christ is more important. Um, was that an inspiration at all? And how do you feel about your book being made into a film? And then the other question I had was, your main sources for the book historically were Roman records and Josephus, and what was the other main source historically? Tacitus, Pliny, mostly Josephus, 
Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a treasure trove of the religious um, sort of diversity of the of the first century. Um, no, look, I, I, lo- I love the I, I love all fictional uh, presentations of Jesus. I think they're fantastic, whether it's the Last Temptation or the Passion, both of which are fiction. Um, but sorry about that. Uh, did I break that to you? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Um, uh, but again, for me, what's fascinating about those is it's just a representation of what I've been talking about all along, which is the, the, the incredible malleability of the Christ story, the way that it can become whatever you want it to become. Uh, my absolute favorite representation of Jesus of all time is Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, it's, fan- it's fantastic, but it's so like so embedded in the 70s and the sort of the Jesus is just all right by me movement, you know. Um, and and so it, it's sort of it's dated in that regard, but it's representation of that world out of which it arose. The fastest growing Protestant movement in North America is this movement that is referred to as the prosperity gospel. Do you know what I'm talking about, the prosperity gospel? This is that the gospel preached by, you know, people like Joel Olstein and and TD Jakes. And I and when I say people, I mean charlatans. Um, uh, this is that the the, the argument uh, of the prosperity gospel, if I can put it uh, flippantly, is that Jesus wants you to drive a Bentley. That's basically what, what the, the argument is. That, that what Jesus wants for you is material prosperity and that if you literally give, you will literally be given tenfold. That's not a metaphor as it is in most churches. It's literal. You give me ten dollars and Jesus will give you a hundred dollars. Um, this is as profoundly an unscriptural interpretation of Jesus' message that that exists. I mean, if there's one thing that is just so clear-cut and and just not open to interpretation of any kind when it comes to Jesus' message, is this condemnation of wealth. And yet, not only does this version of Christianity exist, as I say, it's... Honestly, the fastest growing version of Protestant evangelical Christianity in North America. That's because Jesus can be whatever you want him to be. And the Christian message can be whatever you want it to be. So I think that's what's great about, you know, the sort of film representations. How do I feel about my own? I mean, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be cool. I I like the idea of a gay cowboy Jesus. I think it's cool. Um... (laughs) And uh, uh, I think it's going to be the first time ever that we see on the silver screen a movie based on the historical man and not uh, the Christ of faith. So I'm excited about it. Can I go in the back at all? Is that possible? I don't know. I just feel like I'm neglecting the back. Is there a gentleman up there? And I think we have time for two more questions. So one gentleman and one lady. And we can go in either order. I don't care. Hi. Should be working. Yeah, thank you, Professor. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Can you say something about St. Thomas, the apostle, who might have gone to India? <laughs> yeah. We actually, it's interesting. We know almost nothing about the apostles at all. They're fascinating figures, and they, they play huge roles in these movies. Uh, 
We know a little bit about Peter because he was the first of the apostles. He wasn't the head of the church. That's actually incorrect. He certainly wasn't the head of the Jerusalem assembly. Uh, in fact, the only title that Peter ever had was the Bishop of Rome. But James's title was the Bishop of Bishops. Uh, and in fact, we have letters uh, in, in this sort of treasure trove of documents from the third century called the Pseudo-Clementines. And so there are documents in there um, that uh, that ha- ha- show Peter addressing James as the Bishop of Bishops. Thomas we know nothing about. Uh, but in the same way that there are these sort of legends and myths about Jesus himself... All of the disciples, all of the apostles, I, I made a mistake that I actually want you not to make. The apostles are not disciples, disciples are not apostles, they're different things. So according to the, the gospels, Jesus had 72 disciples. And the definition of a disciple, according to the gospels, is anyone who went from city to city, village to village with Jesus, as opposed to the masses that came out when Jesus showed up in a village. Uh, these are the people who followed him from city to city, village to village, and they were designated disciples. And and there were probably 70 or 72 of them, and they unquestionably included women. We have their names. We know their names. Uh, but among the disciples, there were 12, 12 special ones that were chosen, all of them men, to be called apostles. And the only difference between the apostles and the disciples is that the apostles were allowed to preach Jesus' message without supervision. That's the only, that's the only difference. Uh, and, and the, the 12 apostles were also symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and that's a whole other issue. Um, but this notion that all peoples around the world have a connection to one of these apostles, right? It's a, it's an intimate connection, uh, to Jesus himself is not unusual. I'm sure most of you have heard the sort of the legends and myths of, of Jesus's, you know, childhood in India where he studies at an ashram, you know, learns yoga and then goes back to, um, to, uh, to Galilee. Um, again, this is, you know, as unhistorical as it gets. I mean, it absolutely did not happen. I mean, again, I just want to remind you of who we are talking about when we are talking about Jesus. We're talking about a poor, illiterate, uneducated peasant from the backwoods of Galilee. This man had never heard of India, let alone traveled there. I mean, this man never left Galilee until he went to go visit John the Baptist and then went right back to Galilee and then never left Galilee again until the last few days of his life when he goes to Jerusalem to die. That's it. That's the entirety of Jesus's world. Um, but nevertheless, that's another indication of the infinite variety of ways in which the Christ has been experienced by people of all different cultures, all different religions, all different ethnicities. You make Christ your own by attaching yourself to him. There's actually a very famous um, uh, area uh, just outside of Tokyo uh, where uh, a group of Japanese Christians uh, argue that Jesus is buried in, in Tokyo. They're convinced of it. They'll show you the, they'll show you the grave. That, that's where he is. Uh, Mormons, of course, believe that Jesus spent a good amount of time in the United States hanging out with the with the Native Americans. You just that's what you do. You take the Christ and you make him your own. And then I think there was a last question from a nice lady somewhere. Oh, or gentleman. Oh, whoever has the mic. Yes, go ahead, please. Can you can you say it in a lady's voice?
I don't mind any question at all. Good night, everybody. <laughs> no, that's a very good question. Um, well, look, on the one hand, when you study the world's religions, it becomes difficult to take any religion all that seriously anymore. Because the first thing that you realize almost instantly is that these are all saying the exact same thing. And in fact, in many ways, they're using the exact same stories, the exact same myths, the exact same legends to say it. Um, at the same time, however, unlike most of my colleagues who tend to view faith the way that a biologist views a microbe, you know, like, oh, look at those interesting people with their believing in stuff. Um, I don't in that way. I am a person of faith. I do believe in God. But I know that there is a difference between religion and faith, that these are not the same thing. That faith, which is individualistic, ineffable, indescribable, if you have faith in God, then what you have faith in is in something that is literally beyond the human intellect, that he is utterly transcendent, beyond. Beyond what? Just beyond. Just beyond. The human mind... Yeah, yay God! Uh, the human mind is incapable of fathoming something that is utterly unhuman. And so, we need help. Well, you may be a sinner, not me. Um, but, so then how do we do it? How, how do we express something that is inexpressible? How do we talk about something that is beyond the human intellect, beyond our ability to even fathom, let alone, you know, talk about? Religion, that's how. All religion does is provide a set of symbols and metaphors, a language, to help us express the inexpressible faith. And that's all religion is. It's just a set of symbols and metaphors. I mean that quite literally as a language. If I started speaking Farsi all of a sudden, or Arabic, or Spanish, or, you know, Mandarin, you would stop understanding me. Even though I'd be saying, I'd be expressing the exact same thing that I'm expressing in English, you would just simply stop understanding me, because I was speaking in a different language. That's what religion is, a language. You don't believe me? Let me do a little experiment. If I said to you, I have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay? Raise your hand if you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. You see, what I just did was communicate something profound and emotional to those people who understand my language. To those people who understand what I just said, the symbol, the metaphor, and it's just a metaphor and nothing else, that I just used, we had a connection, man. We had a connection there for a moment. We formed a community. We formed a bond. I said something to you that's visceral and profound, and you got it. For those of you who don't understand those symbols and metaphors, I may as well be speaking Chinese. You have no idea what the hell I'm talking about because you don't share my symbols and metaphors. Religion is nothing but those symbols and metaphors. I 
being familiar with all the symbols and metaphors of the world's religions, prefer the symbols and metaphors of Islam. They make more sense to me. They're not more true. They're not more right. They're just more in line with what I already think about the world, how I already envision myself and my role in this indeterminate world, how I already think about the role of creator and creation. The metaphors, the symbols that Islam provide fit that. And so I use them to express this ineffable experience of faith to myself, first of all, and to other people who get those metaphors, who can speak those metaphors, and who understand what I'm talking about. The Buddha once said that if you want to strike water, you don't dig six one-foot wells. You dig one six-foot well. Islam is my six-foot well. But what the Buddha meant by that metaphor is that the water you are drinking is the water that everybody is drinking. It's just your well that's different. That's all. So that's my conception of, of spirituality. And that's why I call myself a Muslim. Thank you, everyone.